0: today, we come to this section of Matthew chapter 22, and even though many of us feel we have followed Jesus, we have been great disciples of Jesus, in this last phase of Jesus' life, Matthew chooses to put certain discipleship lessons that are a little bit more tough, more deep, more, what I would call, requires tension. It's a tension between do I follow God and obey God, or do I obey Caesar? Is a tension. Do I really look at my life on this earth? How do I relate to life thereafter? What about things in scripture that I don't understand? What, What does it mean to obey Jesus? So these are what I call slightly more difficult discipleship issues and therefore it creates a tension within us. So turn with me now to the book of Matthew. Verse, uh, no, chapter 22, and today we're going to start reading from verse 17. Now, it's a really long section, 17 to chap, uh, verse 45. But you know something? End of the year is also called staff appraisal, and we get our bonus, right? So normally, I would not... I, I love the Bible. How many of you love the Bible? How many of you believe in reading your own Bibles? Praise God. So I actually would love to disciple you where there's no PowerPoints on the Word, and you only read your own Bible. But I thought to myself, if I do that this year, I may not get bonus, you know, because I've been a little bit mean, right? So I'm going to show you the verses so that I get my bonus. So join me in reading Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to read from the NLT, and we will read from verse 16, actually. Are you ready? Are you ready? Top two. I don't know how Pastor Chiu does it. Left to right, top to bottom, whatever lah. Huh? Whatever lah, apapun boleh lah, as long as you read, okay? Alright, one, two, three, go. They sent some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favourites. Now tell us, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked them, whose picture I stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what is to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, here is a powerful... uh, Now, first of all, this thing, three questions are asked. You know, I, I, I disciple my young people with this phrase. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Only stupid people never ask questions. It's actually very good to ask questions. But the truth of the matter was that when these... Pharisees, Herodians, and later on the Sadducees and the teachers of the law came to ask questions to Jesus, their main intention was to trap Him and to find faults with Him. But you know this is where the wisdom of God comes in? Even for critics who give us questions to to trap us, even in that, there's always something to learn. And so one of the great truths, uh, very quickly in passing, is a great discipleship lesson to get out of chapter 22 is this. Do not be afraid of questions. Be like Jesus. Allow people's questions to deal with our inside motives, the thoughts, the clarity of our mind. Maybe our thought process are not as clear as we think it is. So allow people to ask us questions. Now, to be honest, I'm glad the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and all these people ask these questions. Because in these questions contain certain tensions of how a follower of Jesus should live. So the first question has to do with this. How does a Christian live in a real world where there are taxes to pay, there are bills to pay, and there are Caesars operating? How does a Christian live in a real world like that? There's a tension between being a follower of Jesus and being a normal citizen. A Christian has a dual citizenship. He's a citizen of heaven, but he's also a citizen of earth. In a simple way, Jesus gives a simple answer. Now, the background of this is this. The Pharisees were more spiritually minded, you could say, because they were interested in the Torah and obeying the Torah. The Herodians was a sect of the Pharisees who had allegiance to Herod. And so they were more politically aligned. And so they wanted to curry favor with the emperors. So the Herodians believed that you need, to pay, you need to curry favor with the, I don't know if they paid taxes, but they wanted to curry favor with the Caesars. So the Herodians wanted to curry favor with the Caesars. And here was the Pharisees who despised the Herodians and felt that they were truly not the right type of religious people. And they felt that paying taxes was not something a Pharisee or a religious man need to do. As long as they followed the Mosaic law. They would be fine with God. They'd be justified with God. But here is Jesus. And very cleverly, that, that's why I tell you something, a good news, all right? This one, you don't have to pay me extra. Don't pay me bonus, also I give you. God has the greatest wisdom in the whole wide world. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the wisdom of God. Amen? So turn to your friends say, are you a follower of Jesus? Ah, you see, if you follow Jesus... There's so much wisdom that God gives. Jesus, in his wisdom, asked for a coin and asked them, whose image is it on it? If it is Caesar, then give to Caesar. But then he also answered the Herodians. If you are only politically aligned, do not forget that there is a God that you have believed in. So give to God that which is God and to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That is why in Romans chapter 13, you know, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ, were so well tutored in this tension between a real world and the world of the heaven, the spiritual world. They were so well tutored that I believe it's because of this intense understanding and discipleship that Jesus gave to them that by the time they wrote the epistles, they were very clear. What should one do in a real world where there are governments, Not all governments are wonderful. In fact, nowadays, I also don't know which government is wonderful. But I can tell you this. The government at that time was the Roman Empire. Now, in Netflix, they have a series on the Roman Empires. It is a horrendous understanding of the Caesars. They were crazy people. They were mad. They were were insecure. They were tyrants. They were anything but good. So when we read these scriptures... Do not read it with a lens as if it was a perfect government. And do not say to ourselves, oh, of course Paul can write like that. Of course Matthew can write like that. Of course Jesus can say like that. Remember, the most repressive form of government and the most tyrannical autocratic form of government existed at that time. In fact, the question I began to ask God was this. Why did Jesus come on earth and the Christian church was given was born at the time of the most repressive and oppressive of governmental systems. One simple truth. Again, remember the wisdom of God? If they can shine under such darkness, you can. That was God's answer to me. If they can shine under such darkness, you and I in today's great democracies have no reason to even talk about not shining. That is the wisdom of God. God knows even what season to give birth to his church. And don't forget, when he gave birth to the church, it was not one million people became Christians. It was only a handful. 12 disciples, 120, 500, 3,000. What is that compared to the Roman Empire with millions? Nothing. And yet in the midst of that, how would their light shine? How would they manage this dual citizenship? The citizen on earth and the citizen of heaven. How would they live in the tension of a government that's repressive, taxes that were not good, how would they live in that context? Paul states it. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Now, we all don't like to hear these things, but these are truths that God wants us to embrace if we are going to shine as light. And it goes on, so anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. And it goes on to say, pay your taxes too. For the same reasons, for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Another time, Paul says, pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, including your assessments, your whatever else there is. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Now, I want to show this picture because we are living in a time when there's so much things, protests going on in the world. I think Hong Kong is not the only country that's experiencing great protests. You know, yesterday I was looking at the news. It's happening in Chile, it's happening in Lebanon, it's happening in Argentina, it's also happening in Iraq. But Hong Kong, it's a peculiar case because we never expected it to happen in Hong Kong. I don't have an answer for you. It's, you know, when, when we ask ourselves, what would we have done if we were in Hong Kong? I don't think I want to stand here. I have my thoughts, but I will not do it in public to you. Lest I get stoned, remember, I still want my bonus. Um, I want my bonus. Uh, so I'm not going to share it in public. I have my opinions, but in the midst of this crisis, The only only thing that we need to ask ourselves is, how do we obey God and yet live in this kind of situation? Actually, that to me is not the most repressive of governments. It is not. So I'm not going to say this, but I want us to look at 1 Peter 2 verse 17. In 1 Peter 2 verse 17, again, it's a parallel passage to Romans 13. Peter now comes out to share how is it should a Christian live in the context of human governments? Remember again, he's living in the context. Peter, incidentally, was crucified upside down. So in case you wondered, well, Peter, how can you, you kowtow to the governments? Huh? Peter was not writing it because he was kowtowing to the governments. He was writing if he is going to shine in the midst of light, if he truly believes in God, this is the right way to live. And so in the context of it, he says, show, let's read this together, shall we? Let's read this whole sentence together. One, two, three, go. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. Or in my version, fear God, honor the king. So when I was preparing this and I was looking at Hong Kong, I see the tension is really between fear of God and honoring the king. I don't have an answer for them. Perhaps, you know what I I felt I should do? It is a humbling thing to know what to do in such a situation. But the best thing I can do is to pray for them. So can you join me in praying for the people of Hong Kong and even of Chile and all these other places? Because it's not easy. It's not easy to be caught in such a situation. And I believe that is why prayer is so important. Prayer is all about being tutored. It's being tutored in such situations. Prayer, if you read the book, you have a writing that I put in there about prayer. What prayer really is about is a discipleship by God. And that is why we need to pray for the people of Hong Kong. That they will allow this situation for them to be discipled by God so that their light will shine. They will still fear God and they'll still be able to honor the king. Alright, so I'm going to just to do that. Whether you join me or not, that's immaterial. Come on, join me lah. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we live in such difficult times, oh Lord God, when truly we are placed in tensions, not knowing whether and how, what does it mean to fear God and what does it mean to honour the King? How do we live in the context of such society? So Father Lord, all of us Lord, come all of us say Amen. We want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Hong Kong. Just pray in tongues for a while or pray with words. Father, we really want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Hong Kong, in Chile, even in Lebanon, oh Lord God. Father, where there's no food in Lebanon, where there's no food on the table in Argentina. Father, oh Lord God, we ask, oh Lord God, that even the church of God in those nations, oh Lord God, even in Hong Kong, will rise up and show, oh Lord God, once more their light will shine, oh Lord God. And indeed, the world will begin to turn to the church for wisdom and for counsel, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Now, we're going to move on now to the second section and the second set of questions. The second set of questions is a little bit ridiculous, all right? So, turn with me, look at your Bibles. This time, I've chosen not to put all of it up, but it starts in verse 23. So, here you have a group of Sadducees. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to it. Matthew 22, verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees which say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. I'm not going to read the rest, but I just want to give you the context. Here was the Sadducees. The Sadducees represented a group of believers who did not believe in the resurrection. So here again, we have a situation. How are we going to be followers of Jesus if we do not understand certain spiritual truths? It could be that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection because they didn't understand it. So here we have another second scenario. So the first scenario for us as followers, remember the whole thing is about discipleship. So the first discipleship question is how do we live in the tension between a real world and a world that God has given us? As Christians and as citizens on earth. That's the first question in discipleship. The second question in discipleship is really about belief systems. The Sadducees could not believe in the resurrection, so they did not know how to handle it. So they came to Jesus and gave this kind of a crazy scenario, a make-believe scenario. A man has um, seven brothers, so this man dies. According to the Mosaic law, if a man dies, he, the, the widow must marry the, the second brother, the next brother in line, so that this brother will help him uh, to have children and carry his lineage or carry his uh, name to posterity. Well, this woman, wow, well, look at her, so I pink son. Because what a family, what a story. Uh, I think uh, if she had a story like that, she needs to go to Elijah's house. Definitely seven steps to freedom. Needs counselling. Because she marries this man, he dies. Then the next brother married, also died. Next one die. All seven die. Oh. Like that, I think she will die first or before worry about resurrection. But she survived. And so, look at this uh, question. Whose they ask, uh, look at the, the, I think it's in verse 30. Um, can what, what verse is that? Tell me. Verse 28, yeah. She says, now then, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be since she married all seven? Now, I like Jesus' answer. I like Jesus' answer. Whenever we come to a perplexity of the spiritual world, to scriptures of God, to things of God that we do not understand, and we yet we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must not think of the most complex situation and then make it say, you see, so impossible, I think this is not true one i love jesus answer everybody says if you follow jesus got a lot of wisdom one nah, i know you see the one huh? mm. <laughs> look at jesus answer he said jesus replied your mistake is this you don't know the scriptures neither do you know the power of god that is always the root problem of many of us who cannot embrace certain truths. Actually, very often when people come to us and give us uh, some difficult, difficult question that they think is so impossible, how can I be a Christian and believe in this? The chances are they haven't even read their Bible. And that's why it seems difficult. The second thing is that having read the Bible, we limit God to the ways men think. And we limit the power of, the ability, the genius of God, that is the problem. So I like the way Jesus answered them. I look at how Jesus answered it. So he says, you do not know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether there'll be a resurrection. So Jesus is answering the question, you don't understand what the resurrection is because you don't know anything. Number one, you didn't even explore the scriptures. Neither do you know how God, what God does in the resurrection. So it says, As to whether there'll be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And let's all say this together. So he is the God of the living and not the dead. Everybody say, my God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And not of the dead. Now, this is such a powerful truth that when I read this, I felt, A very important thing, therefore, I must also be wise. Here is a discipleship moment. In this church, we teach a lot about the cross, but we hardly ever teach about the resurrection. So I'm going to give you a little short, simple, as simple as I can do it, uh, understanding of the resurrection because Jesus is saying you must understand the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection it's the key to our Christian life. So I'm going to talk about the resurrection, all right? Everybody say the resurrection. You see, if you don't understand the resurrection, you'll be like the Sadducees. You'll be very sad, you know, because it's only about this life. That's why they're so-called Sadducees. They're sad, you see. Ah. Amen? Because they only got the dead. But we are alive, right? We have a God of the living. So we are no longer sad, you see. Ah. So we're going to be happy people, Amen? All right, so we're going to learn a little bit about the resurrection. It's not about this life or the afterlife. You need to know both. First of all, the best place to understand the resurrection, and you want to go back, I know that cell groups are still functioning, you should go back, and study about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There are two chapters uh, that are in the Bible that are very good about resurrection. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one is in John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me, even as he's alive, he shall never die. I thought that's such a powerful chapter. In fact, when I read that chapter, I can understand how powerful this is, but Jesus purposely waited for four days to make sure, very sure, that Lazarus had died. Why? Because when Jesus came in and called out the name Lazarus, wow, life came to earth from the dead. What a powerful historic moment. At that moment, Jesus stepped into this life to proclaim, this life is not the only life. There is an afterlife. And in this afterlife is where Jesus has come for us. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to talk about the afterlife. Now, in the afterlife, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm just going to take bits of it. Look at what Paul says. It's in fact, you know, I wish, uh, I, I'm, okay, I won't do this. I was going to read the whole of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul speaks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 in a very powerful way. He reaches verse 13 and he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's the first point. Do you know that uh, apostles, after Jesus rose from the dead, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Acts of the Apostles, every time the apostles preached the message, they always say, and Jesus Christ whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Come on, you're not excited. Come on. Come on. Whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that He has won victory over death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that sin has been dealt with. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that Satan has been defeated. Without a resurrection, Jesus has not won a victory. That is the truth. Amen? That is why I I, I must say, I feel a little bit unhappy that we do not teach about the resurrection. So I decided I'm going to take opportunity. This passage is about resurrection. You like, don't like, give me bonus, don't give me bonus, I'm going to teach. Because it says here, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is useless. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. In fact, in Colossians, that powerful prayer, you know, um, He was a visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In that whole section, I love Pastor Elder Kunta. He always uses that section, which I love. And then he goes on to say, he is the firstborn from amongst the dead. The firstborn from amongst the dead. So that it, because he's the firstborn amongst the dead, we will be the secondborn, thirdborn, millionborn, 200 millionborn. He has supremacy over everything. It's because Jesus has risen from the dead that he now has supremacy. Amen? Amen? And look at this. If Christ is not dead, has not raised either, if the the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection, that means Jesus cannot be raised. Cannot be raised. That's it. But because Jesus has been raised, and it says that, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. The reason why we have proof that our sins are forgiven is today we have a resurrected Jesus. Amen? We have a resurrected as proof that all account has been settled and Jesus can reign above all things. Amen? And therefore, Paul goes on to say, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, above all people, most to be pitied. What a section of scripture. So I want to say this. First, two things about the resurrection. The resurrection is this. Jesus was resurrected. That's why He is our living hope. Everybody say, Jesus has been resurrected. Now say it strong. We do not have a dead God. We have a living God. Do you know that? All idols are dead. All religions, gurus are dead. But Jesus is alive. That's why He's our living hope. Amen? The second truth is this. We too will be resurrected. That is our hope. Amen? Not only is Christ the living hope, we have a living hope. And that is why Paul, in Romans chapter 5, preaches this so powerfully. You know, if you read Romans 5, he says, therefore we rejoice in our sufferings. How can you rejoice in your sufferings? Because suffering produces character, character produces perseverance, and perseverance, hope. But what is this hope? It's not hope that all things will change. It's hope of the resurrected life. The guarantee of the Holy Spirit is the resurrected life. And the resurrected life is what we need to look forward to. All right? I'm coming to that. Just bear with me. So the first truth about the resurrection, everybody says, Jesus is alive. Second truth about the resurrection, we will be resurrected. The third truth comes here. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 also says this, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. So the question is, what happens in the resurrection? What will it look like when we are resurrected? Because the problem with the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the resurrection, so they saw this impossibility. How on earth uh, will this, whose wife will she be? She had seven husbands, whose wife? We forget the power of God. We also forget that in the resurrection, it's no longer about this life. It's about the afterlife. So, wow, please, brothers and sisters, go and read 1 Corinthians 15. I almost feel I've shortchanged you by not reading it. So I cannot tahan, must read. Bonus, no bonus, so I'm going to read. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It is just so powerful, especially the section about the resurrection. It says here, but someone may say to you, how are the dead raised in verse 35? "What, What kind of body will they have? What kind of body will they have? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 35. Someone may ask you, how can the dead be raised? What what happens in resurrection? What kind of body will they have? How foolish, don't you know? Then he goes on, I'll give it to you now. In the resurrection of the dead, the body which is so perishable is raised imperishable, can never die again, can never decay, can never be sick. Everybody said imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. That means we may be sown and when we die, our body may, we may look very, very old and wrinkled and sick and, and gone. In case if a disease, we may have lost all the beauty. Our hair fall out, teeth fall out, everything fall out. Sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. This is a powerful truth, especially for some of us, our loved ones have passed away. Actually, that's why Paul goes on to say, I wish I was living there. Because the glory of the latter body. My husband uh, was looking at all the pictures. So I tell, my husband, don't listen. This husband, don't listen. I tell you the problem of my husband. So we were looking at all the pictures of our 25 years in SIB. We came to this amazing picture uh, of me and him in EO3. Then he says, wow, you look so young then. You look so young then. Then I was like, you think I look still look very old already, man now? Ah. <laughs> Never mind, in the resurrection, sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Yeah, Uncle Kuntat. yeah. Raised, uh, raised, so turn to your husband and I'll be raised in glory. Don't worry. It's sown in weakness. It was raised in power. Isn't that awesome? It's sown in weakness. Can you imagine us? Do you know something? In the resurrection, not only will there be no husband, no wife, no children, everyone are brothers and sisters, but this is the beauty of the resurrection. How can it happen? How can it happen? The power of God. That's why, you know, in the second verse of that song, God is so good, did you recognize as the verse says, that uh, that uh, okay, age to age, what, sing, 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 sing. <laughs> How to sing, uh, Age to age and hour by hour, the dead are raised, the sinners saved, the work of His power. God is so good. Amen. God is so good. Amen. God is so good. He is so good. To me. Next time you sing that song, remember, you are going to be raised, perishable, to be imperishable, dishonor, to be in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. How can that happen? It is the power of God. Amen? It is the power of God. Turn to your friend and say, I cannot wait to be in heaven, but stay on earth still. (laughs) Because before you go to heaven, you also need to know uh, what happens in heaven. All right? right, I I like this. Not only are we ready, let's complete that whole section. All right. This is a powerful section. Are you ready? Let's just read this together to give it the completion. One, two, three, go. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory, where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, let's give Jesus such a big clap offering. Amen, amen. So, it's not just about this life, there is an afterlife. And I want to say this to you the afterlife is probably more important than the this life. In fact, you know, I was hearing, um, uh, what's it, what's, who preached this just now? It's sorry, la, my brains are gone. 25th anniversary, my brain's very gone. Right oh, Pastor Jeffrey, yeah. Pastor Jeffrey preached first and second uh, service, and he told a story of his uh, colleague at work. The colleague was nearing retirement age, 60 years old plus. And as he was about to retire, he got all his money and all his uh, uh, stocks and all that. And so uh, Jeffrey asked him, so what are you going to do now that retire? Oh, I'm going to enjoy life. So listen to his enjoyment of life. His enjoyment of life is, I'm going to have a girl every night, a different girl every night. I thought, one girl or so, my husband's so tough already. A different one every night. I, I don't know if it's called enjoyment or not. Anyway, he said, oh, but won't you worry that you might have AIDS and you might have material diseases? He said, what does it matter? I'm going to die anyway, so I have AIDS and then die lah. Ah, here is a man who thinks that life is only about this life. There is an afterlife. So why is the resurrection important? Not only that we will be resurrected, but also come to this other point. Okay, let's just do this one. This is the nice part. In this life, we will be mortal. In the afterlife, we will be, in this life, we will perishable. But in the afterlife, we will be imperishable. In this life, it's a natural body. In the afterlife, it will be a spiritual body. And I like to add, a glorious body. Now, the resurrection, therefore, has three points already so far, right? In the resurrection, we need to believe in it because Jesus is alive. Amen? And the true victory of Jesus Christ is because he has been resurrected. The second truth about the resurrection is that it's not just that we believe Him now, but we will be resurrected. Amen? We have a living hope. The third truth about the resurrection is this. When we are resurrected, we will be nothing like what we are now. We are going to have a glorious, immortal, imperishable body. How will it happen? The power of God. The fourth truth about the resurrection is this. And Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, another very good chapter on the resurrection, Paul talks about, I long to be with Christ. I wish I'm not in my body. I would rather be in that heavenly body. I have this tension, whether to be with you on earth or to be with God who is in heaven. So he talks about that. But he also states a very important point. So maybe turn with me. Let, let me read a little bit more, all right? More than just what I've given you on the, on the screen. Look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to read from verse 6. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body we are away from the Lord. So look at him. He's looking forward to being with the Lord. As long as we are in the body we are at home, we're not at, we away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are also confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So his eyes are fixed on the afterlife. That's how he lives. So we make it our our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For, in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now this is it. We cannot just think about the resurrection as just glorious bodies alone. We also need to think of the resurrection to give us the impetus to live a godly life. Because whether we like it or not, it is in the resurrection that Christ takes on a different form. Christ will no longer be the savior. He will be, no longer be the redeemer. He will be the judge of all mankind. And that is where the accounting takes place. And that is why when Paul looks forward to the resurrection, he's conscious of his life on earth. He does not spend it carelessly. In fact, Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just now, I told you, go back and read the whole of 1 Corinthians 15. Towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if I do not believe in the resurrection, I would have been in vain fighting this wild beast in Ephesus. All my struggles would be in vain. But if I don't believe in the resurrection, I would say like that, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Indeed, many of us And maybe not in this church, but many people who don't even believe in Jesus Christ have this concept of life, like like Pastor Jeffrey's friend. Live, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But after death, what else? What next? Do you know I want to tell you a story? This year, a Penan pastor, five Penan pastors came to do an internship, a short three-month internship with us. One of the Penan pastors tells a wonderful story account of what happened to him seven years ago. This account is not very different from what happened to Pastor Chu's father when Pastor Chu's father had an 11-minute cardiac arrest and out-of-body experience. This Penang pastor had a four-hour out-of-body experience. In that four hours, they were actually getting ready to bury him. So during that four hours, what happened to him? Now, this is someone that has died and God, in his mercy, brought him back. But what did God take him to see? And I think God allows these kind of experiences to tell us who are alive the reality of the afterlife. So this man, he was taken. First of all, it was, he said, it was frightening. It was the only reason why he could still stand there was Jesus was by his side. And Jesus took him into, first of all, darkness, where hell is. And wow, the way he described it up to today, I can... Feel what he shared. He shared two major things in hell. It is so dark that it's beyond darkness comprehension because you can't even see your, your finger that's held just one inch in front of you. And in that darkness, two things is evident: a rising fire and furnace, and a smell of stench. That's one thing. Second thing is the cries that come, that you can hear the screams and the shrieks and all the. And do you know something he said? Inside that furnace were not just non-Christians. There were Christians, including pastors, popes, what have you. And they were crying one thing. I regret, I regret, I regret. I wish, I wish, I wish. Do you know there's no repentance in the afterlife? All repentance must take place on earth. Don't wait to the afterlife. The second thing, then God took him up to heaven. When he reached that, the thing that unfolded before him was as if a scene, well, like an LED screen. Okay, in the 25th anniversary, you must come and see our LED screen. It's very huge. But I think this LED screen bigger than the one in 25th anniversary. It was a panoramic LED screen. And on it, he saw every year of his life, every moment of his life, even incidents he did not remember, incidents he remembered, And it showed even his thought life. He said, it was frightening to know that every aspect of your life is recorded in heaven. I want to say this humbly, my friends. The only reason I think God allows such people to see this is to come back on earth to tell us, live this life soberly with due respect that the real accounting is in the afterlife. Do you know, if you don't believe this, you can ask Pastor Chu about his father. My father-in-law had a similar experience, 11 minutes out-of-body experience. And when he was taken to heaven, God showed him every part of his life, including the parts when he was running away from the Japanese and he was in hiding, how God protected him, including parts when he was ashamed of. But do you know the beauty of being a believer? The sins were expunged. The sins were expunged. That's why only in this life Can there be forgiveness of sins? Not in the afterlife. It's very important. Do you know that's why? Go back to Matthew 13. You see, at the end of the three questions, Jesus asks a very important question. So go back to Matthew 13, all right? Jesus asks a very important question. He's asked the the Pharisees, he says, look, whose son actually is, is, is the Christ? So look at this. Why did Jesus insert this last question? After they have asked him the three questions, he was not tricking them. He was exposing a truth that they did not embrace. And I want to use this to also remind us, as much as we know Jesus will save us of our sins, Jesus will redeem us, we must also know who Jesus ultimately is. So look at that in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think? about the Christ, whose son is he? So they said, the son of David. Then he said to them, then tell me, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, begins to call him Lord, and then says, what does it mean, this quotation of scripture from the Psalms? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies under your feet or the footstool of your feet. Now, why did Jesus quote this Psalm? Jesus quoted this Psalm To highlight a very important truth that Jesus is ultimately King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that even David would have to submit to. And I think, as Christians, as believers, if we want to be well discipled, we must always embrace this truth not only Jesus as our Savior, but Jesus as our Lord. Until we embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we cannot fear God and honor the King because it's really we won't be able to embrace that because God or Jesus is not seen as the ultimate judge. And the good news is this. I want to bring in the good news. John 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, that means shall not be judged, but have eternal life, life everlasting, resurrection life. And then he says, for I did not come into the world to condemn the world. So the first coming of Jesus is not to be a judge, but to forgive. But, it goes on to say, but for anyone who does not believe, they stand condemned. Not that God condemned them, but the offer. See, the first part of chapter 22 is about the offer, the invitation to come into God's kingdom. If you refuse that, well, There is condemnation because Jesus in the afterlife is a judge, not the Savior anymore. Amen? Now, I just want to say this because I want to be thorough in our discipleship. If we want to be really disciples of Jesus Christ that know how to live in the difficult situations of life, we need to realize that in the afterlife, there is an accounting. Amen? So I want to summarize this life or the afterlife. Let me summarize it. This life and the afterlife, let's say it together. What is it that we must understand? Remember, Jesus is giving some discipleship lessons and Matthew begins to recognize this. This is the last, he doesn't know it's the last week, but as he wrote the book, He decided to put these very difficult lessons into the last week of Jesus' life and he began to remind us that, look, you must know about the resurrection. You must understand the resurrection. So what is it that we need to understand about the resurrection? Everybody say this together. Shall we do that? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, go. Jesus was resurrected. He is our living hope. Number two, we too will be resurrected. This is our eternal hope. Number three, at the resurrection, there's a change to our physical state or change to our present state. Number four, Jesus is the judge in the resurrection. Amen. Now, even as we come to the end of chapter 22, I want to tackle the third question. This the third question is actually a very simple question, but yet a difficult question. The third question, go back to Matthew chapter 22. I decided not to put it on the screen because it's a simple question the teachers of the law were not satisfied. So they came to Jesus and begin to ask him this, the expert of the law came to ask Jesus this question and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this is important to a Jew. For a Jew, to love God is to obey God. So to them, obeying the law became a criteria of how great a godly man they were. If they wanted to judge whether they were a good Jew or a bad Jew, a, a good son of David or a bad son of David, they really judged by whether they had obeyed all those 600 laws. Then Jesus began to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he adds, and the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. And all that laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So I would end today by saying this. Even as we may say, yeah, you know, this, disciple, uh, this um, Pharisees, they just don't get it. They don't get it. Actually, you just need to love God and obey. Now, actually, we will also, if we think that the Pharisees were crazy, that 600 laws to obey, do you know something? As I was worshipping just now, I felt the Lord say to me, in true discipleship, the ability to obey gets harder and harder. Actually, it'd be more than 600 over laws. It's not even about laws. There'll be many situations when we be put in a dilemma. Do I, how do I obey God in this dilemma that I face? How do I obey God in this situation in my life? Should I marry this guy? Should I divorce my husband? Should I do this? Should I join another church? Should I, uh, wow, terrible things happening in some churches. Should I do whatever is happening there? These are situations that require obedience. To all these situations, as complex as it is, Jesus gives a cardinal rule. Love the Lord your God first with your heart. Why the heart? Because the heart is the seat of affection. The heart is the seat of preference. When you're put in a dilemma, let's say, Christian, you see two girls and you don't know who to choose. It's your heart that helps you choose. It won't be your mind it won't even be your will. So the heart is the seed of choice. The heart is the seed of what I call preference. Do you, why Jesus says, love the Lord your God, first in your heart. Do you prefer Jesus to all these things? Then your will, the soul comes in. Then you will be able to act out of the will. Because you do not prefer Jesus, actually your will have no willpower. And therefore, the mind, once the will has no willpower, the mind goes into this conflict. How to obey? I cannot obey one. How to obey such a thing? So I'm going to end by telling a story of the 25 years of SIB. Just one story to illustrate this point. There are many stories. You must buy the book. Incidentally, you should also get the merchandise. You get a lot of stuff is coming out. You must get the cups. The cups are awesome. And you must bring visitors. The visitors get a different type of cup from everybody else. Oh, yes. Now, come on, bring your friends, all right? Now, in the the book, we tell the story. In the the production, also, we tell the story. But I want to tell you my version of it together with Elder Kuntat's version of it. You see, when we were a very, very small church with only 120 people, we have very limited resources and very limited savings account. The problem was that we were in uptown Damansara. Did you know the story of our beginning? You must come and hear the song. All right, Evan is laughing because that's what the musical is about. And we had uh, the numbers, 120 was getting a little bit crowded. And in that situation, we needed to look for another building. So we went all around to look for buildings. And do you know that um, finally we found a building and the building cost 1.3 million. How to find 1.3 million? ah? But do you know what happened? God miraculously gave us the money for it so we got the building even to get the building was a difficult thing because we had to challenge uh, some big tycoons who wanted to buy that building as well and the and the owner of the building actually wanted to sell it at a better price to some bigger tycoons but he walks into our prayer meeting and he says i cannot challenge i can challenge men but i cannot challenge god oh you must go and read that story go and read that stories inside the book and then, so then, after we, he let us buy the building, we only have enough money in our fixed deposit for the down payment. Actually, we don't even have enough money to pay the stamp duty. You know, later on, we decided, we discovered. But that we didn't know because we were so blown away that he sold to us. We're so happy, you know. Wow, he sell us the building, sell the new, he obey, he, 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 he man, I believe in. What, what did he say? What did he say? I cannot uh, disobey. Uh, what, what? I cannot fight against God. I can fight against man. Wow, such a glorious truth, you know. We also, wow, wow, wow. Then the reality strikes. Where to find 1.3 million. Ah? Only 120 people, I tell you, 120 people. 90% were your age. No, not even your age group. 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. All students. Mana other one. Where do find 1.3 million? But supernaturally, go and read the book. Go and let's come to the 25th anniversary. God raises the 1.3 billion. We were so happy. Wow, God, everybody says, God is with us. And then comes the prayer meeting. See, the prayer meetings is where God disciples us. Then comes the prayer meeting. We always, in those days, even up to now, all the leaders always go to prayer meetings. But the leaders in those days, only six. You, me, Elder Kuntat, Uncle Bernard, Chuck K, Kao Tim Cho. And at the prayer meeting, we were just about to start the plans for renovation. The Holy Spirit speaks. And at the prayer meeting, something in me, I felt the Lord say to me, give up the Section 19 building, that's the name of that building, to the BM section. Now, the BM section was also growing. The BM section had about 200 people, 150 people by then. And God says that, but I said, this cannot be, it must be the devil. Devil, I rebuke you. Satan, get down behind me. And even nobody knows what was happening inside me. In walks Elder Kuntat. Elder Kuntat was not Elder Kuntat at that day. He was just a young Christian of only three months old. He will tell you the story better, but I'm just going to... Sorry, Elder Kuntat, if I change it a little bit and uh, bluff a little bit, you get the real one from him, okay? (laughs) Invite him to yourself to tell. He has lots of stories to tell. Incidentally, if you wondered uh, how Elder Kuntat came to church, it was because we had this girl called Anna. Anna. And when she buys chairs, in those days, you have to buy your own chair no to come to church. you no money, ma. And, but we also told them, don't just buy your chair. You buy enough to bring other people. So she bought 10 chairs. And all 10, she filled up within six months. Elder Kuntak was one of them. <laughs> See? Go and buy chairs. You want to do church planting, make them buy chairs. Don't buy for them. Then they will be filled up. So here it comes. He comes in, only three-month-old Christian. Elder Kuntak, I just heard your story, the other version. You got a word. Tell them, my house is not a house of brick and mortar. Now, for a three-month-old Christian, that doesn't make sense. Somehow he's from the property line. What do you mean my house is not a house of brick and mortar? If he's from the property line, every house is made of brick and mortar. So I was told that he got so b- crazy. And you know, Elder Kunta is, uh, incidentally, if you didn't know, he is actually a great, brilliant man, alright? I think he's got masters from, don't know what university one. I also don't know what, so such a brilliant man, he said, if I go and tell them that, they would think I'm crazy, you know. Some like three-month-old Christian, they think I'm crazy, you know? they will shoot me out of the church. So he went into the toilet to hide. In the toilet, as he hid, I heard the story, I, Elder, if it's not true, tell, 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 tell them it's not true loud, but that's what I heard. But Elder, uh, Pastor Chu told me secondhand. That's why no good on secondhand. <laughs> I wasn't there at a the prayer meeting, ma. So he hides in the bathroom and still the guys go, go and tell them. That's obedience, right? First obedience. Go and tell them, even when it didn't make sense. How can you three-month-old Christian tell these elders some more? At that time, praise God, we were not yet called pastors. So I think got more courage. Nobody was a pastor. Everybody just normal. So he walks in there and says, ah, I think, I don't know what you said, but I said, I think God's, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say this. He said, uh, my house shall not be called a house of brick and mortar. Now, he didn't understand it, but I understood it. Immediately I said, that's it. God, and then I had the courage. <laughs> I cried. Oh God, I think God said, give away the section 19 building to the BN section. And then Uncle Bernard also said, yes, I also feel God say that. <laughs> then Chuck Lee, no Chuck Lee, Yes, I also feel God say that. I was thinking to myself, why don't you all say earlier that I don't have to say Lord And I'm sure Elder Kudat says, why did not you all say earlier that I don't have to say Lord Now, It was, now listen, it's very tough to do that. I'll tell you why. This is why we didn't record it so intensely. So I tell you, you must tell others the real story. With all the juices in, cannot do so many juices inside the book one. You see, what happened is this. When we bought the Section 19 building, we used up our entire savings. We had no more savings Number two, no more benefactor. The guy's not going to give you another 1.3 million. He got no more, so 1.3 million, give you five, where to find another 1.3 million, right? Number three, that building, we, we already told the owner of the, 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 the place, uh, we are surrendering our tenancy. God, so, we have nowhere to meet, we have no building, we have no money, no benefactor. Now, will you obey? Will you obey if you were the elders of the church at that time? If you were running the church at that time, will you have obeyed? I don't know. I think we were trained and discipled to prefer Jesus even when we didn't understand. I think in the book, you hear another story of how we didn't go to Australia. I think we were discipled. When Jesus gives his discipleship lesson, The disciples was learning a core truth. When faced in a dilemma to obey or not obey, don't worry about the word obedience. Begin to think, do you love Jesus? Do you trust him or not? Will you prefer making the decision that will keep that relationship with him or will you choose a decision based on logic? Do you know when when we decided yes, that night we said yes, we will give away the Section 19 building. Do you know something? So when we gave away the Section 19 building, we were in a dilemma. We have no place to meet, we have no money, and we have no benefactor. So we went around scouting. And so this is where, Fergus, don't worry. We went to a place. This is especially only for Fergus. You don't worry why I give specially for him. Only he knows. We went round and went to a place in uh, PJ. We found the building, but it had many pillars. But you know what suited our budget? Our budget that we cannot rent a place more than $5,000 a month because we don't have the congregation size to do it. But the guy refused to to, uh, rent it to us. He insisted on $5,005. But you know something? We, by that time, knew that God, whatever it is, we don't have $5,000 and we're not going to give extra $500, even though we probably can find it. But we left it because God was leading us to a better building. So Elder Kuntat, who now by now feels very guilty that we lost the Section 19 building, took us to see CP Tower. And the rest is history, which you must go and read the book and find out. Or come to the 25th and find out. But I'll tell you, I want to end on this point. Discipleship is about walking into the miracle moments of God. To walk into the miracle moments of God and to see our lives transform, it requires a faith in God that's not just called faith, it's called love. It is love that will give faith and faith that will build love. And out of this comes obedience. Because we gave up the section 19 and came to CP Tower, our destiny changed. Our target group changed, our positioning changed, everything changed. And because of that step of obedience, today you are here in this building. Amen? Amen? So I end by saying, don't worry about obedience first. Think of loving God first. Amen? Followers of Jesus need to, everybody look at this. This is the discipleship that caused the disciples to change the world. They changed the world because they feared God and honored Caesar. They changed the world because while they lived this life faithfully on earth, they always knew there was an afterlife. These disciples changed the world because they loved God first, not obey God first. They loved God and loved others. And they changed the world because they did not just follow Jesus as saviour, but they knew that Jesus would one day be Lord and judge of all the earth. So S-I-B-K-L, as we enter the next 25 years, let's all say this together. I want to fear God and honour the King. I want to live this life and I want to have the life after. I want to love God and love others. Jesus is my Saviour, but He's also my Lord. Jesus is my Redeemer, but He's also my Judge. Judge. Amen? Amen? And if we live like that, We will know how to live life in its tension. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? And sing the song, God is so good. God is so good. Let's sing this song. Oh, maybe we should sing the second verse song, Age to Age. Yeah. Behold the the cross, cross, age
1: to age, age, and hour hour by hour. raise the sinner saved. the work of your power God come on let's so thank the Lord shall we do that let's thank the Lord and give him all the honor and all the praise God you're, you're so good, good. God, you're God you're so good you so good One more time, blessing to the Lord From the bottom of our hearts He's a good God, God you're so good God, you're so good God, you're so good Amen God, you're so good You're so good You know, at the end of the day, even coming to the 25th anniversary celebration on the 17th of November is only an event. Event come, event go. But more important is what is deposited after the event. It's the same for the sermon that Pastor Gichu has just preached. If you only come to hear sermons, there's always sermon last week, in the sermon next week and so on and so forth. But more important is what has God deposited in your spirit, man? After the sermon. It's up to you to decide. Live for God. None of the things that we have shared today are just men's words. None of the things we have shared with you today are just men's ideas. No. These are eternal truths of God. You take it seriously and live your life honouring God, you will never be disappointed. If you only live your life with the lens of this life alone, remember, remember, 70, 80, 90, 100 years that I give you, so what? You can go to a thousand cruises, the best seven-star cruise, so what? live your life love the lord with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind that is the first and greatest commandment love god please spend a moment of quietness before god before we close every one of you Love God, friend. Love God. Just love Him with all your heart. Love Him. That's all the world requires from you. Not your substance, not your money, not your time. No. Not your giftings. Love Him.
0: Amen. Truly God is good. He wants us to really grow and succeed and to be victorious throughout our Christian life. I just feel God is so good. So good. So good. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, just thank the Lord. Just say, Lord, you are so good. Yes. If I don't understand things, it's not because they are not good. Yes. But I, don't, I want to understand it. I want to it will be like the disciples were told. I want to read my scriptures. I want to engage with you so that you can download to me even in the very difficult situations in life how to love you, how to obey you, how to prefer you. You know, I know that many of us go through many difficult situations in life. Yes. You know, just begin to say, God, help me. Help yes. me to prefer you. Help me to love you. And I know once I love you, this situation, I will have the idea. I will have an understanding. I'll be able to make the right decisions yes. in life. So why don't we just lift, you know, if you have going through difficult situations and decision-making situations, why don't you just lift your hand? I just feel God's love and compassion. Amen.
1: Come, let's all stretch our hands. A little Hallelujah. Your hands.
0: Yes, just just stretch your hands. God is such a good God. Yeah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You. We have such a living hope. We have such a living hope, both in this life and in the life thereafter. Because You rose again, You are alive, Lord Jesus. We worship a living God who speaks to us, who tutors us, who guides us, who has walked the earth, who understands the difficulties and trials we go through. We have a living hope, Lord. So we give thanks to you, Lord. Father, we want to say to you, you are good. You are good. Let's just sing that chorus again. Yeah. God,
1: you're, you're so good. God, just embrace you're
0: the goodness so of God. Good. He doesn't want to be our judge, He wants to be our savior right God, now.
1: You're so good. You're so good. To me, I am all, I am blessed, I, I, am, blessed, I am whole I am healed, healed I am whole, I, I, am healed, healed, I am saved in Jesus' name. I, I am favored, anointed, filled with your power for the glory of Jesus' name. I am blessed, I am am called, I am healed, I am whole, I am saved in Jesus' name. Highly favored, anointed, filled with your power for the glory. Jesus name God is so good God you're so good God you're so good God you're so good, God, you're so good. God, you're so good.
0: And now, Lord God, may the love of God our Father that flows into us an eternal fountain of love, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all until we meet again. And all God's people say, Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Praise we God. see you next Praise God. God bless week. you. All Have right, a wonderful, you.
1: wonderful week.